Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all of your love and your ways, which are not our ways, Lord. Thank you for showing us and helping us to remain in faith no matter what we see, Lord, because you are always faithful and you're good and you're trying the word in us. And we just thank you, Lord, for growing us and strengthening us and blessing us in so many ways. Through Christ, we, we pray and we believe and we thank you for your the fresh manna today from heaven. This timely word, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 11. The Lord says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I believe that we are in a tumultuous time in our nation and in our world. It's a fallen world and never has that been so evident in my life. The corruption of men's hearts and minds as it is today. The Lord sees everything. He continues to cause it to rain. Rain being a good thing as if you're a farmer on the just and the unjust. Knowing that it's his goodness that brings men to repentance. Mm -hmm. But it seems like the more that they're blessed, the more arrogant they become. And you have to wonder how long this can last. Proverbs chapter 8, Proverbs 8 verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. If we love the Lord and we reverence the Lord and we esteem him as we should, then we are to hate that which is evil. And now we live in a nation which embraces evil at every turn and tries to call it good and wants to force you to call it good. If you will not call their evil good, then you are deemed as a hater, as a bigot, as a racist, and any other ungodly thing. They can call you to try and bully you into giving them verbal approval. In their evil ways. God says this is an abomination. Look at one more. Proverbs 94. No. Of course there's no. Psalm 94. There's no Proverbs 94. Psalm 94 verse 4. Psalm 94, verse 4. 
They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. Braggers. Arrogant. Pour out their arrogant words. And all the evildoers boast in their arrogance. In their evil doing. And you look. And you, you study these people. And they're so seemingly confident in their arrogant pride. Which is really rebellion against God. Why? You say, do they really believe what they're saying? And, and many times they do. Matter of fact, I heard one of them say recently that they're really the ones doing God's work. Not the God, not the true and living God. When you boo God out of your meetings and try to ride him out of your oaths and paperwork and you call for the killing of the unborn, the most vulnerable of our people. And now even right up to the time of birth, You try to redefine the things that God has established in his word and force others to call that good. Those people are not doing the work of God. Look in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 Verse 9. Now, go back to 8 because I love that verse. This is Jesus talking. And he says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on earth? For Jesus to have to ask this question has always been so sad to me. And you look around today and you see the arrogant and the boastful and the lack of faith in God and the resistance and the rejection of God. And you have to wonder, is he, will he, find faith when he returns. And all you can do is make the decision that Lord let me be found in faith at your return and let me help others to be strong in faith upon your return. I think that's an honest and beautiful prayer if it comes from the heart, we can't control the world or those around us, but we can influence as beacons of God's light 
And we can continue in faith even when it looks like we're all alone because we know that everyone in the Bible that ever acted in self-pity as if they were the only ones standing for God, he always showed them they were wrong and rebuked them for thinking so. So we're not alone. But we are in a war, a spiritual war. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. I've never understood this in the sense that I do understand why the world hates us as Christians in the spiritual sense. Because I know that the, the devil is in charge of this realm for a time. And that his influence spiritually on people he has deceived and and caused people to, to hate those that they should love. But I never really understood it in a, in a more serious light. Because Christians, if they're really living as Christians. Not all those who say that they're Christians are Christians. And many are backsliders and not living as they should. They look more like the world than they do like Jesus. Which is not good. So I understand the confusion sometimes with the world when they look at those supposed Christians who live like hell. But I never have understood if they were, went to the text, if they went to and studied Jesus' life and studied his words and his ways as opposed to some of the other so-called prophets that the world follows. Jesus is the only one that charged us to love, to love everyone, and we do. So the world doesn't understand that we can hate a sin and love the sinner because they identify themselves as the sin or with the sin. But we understand that that it's a spiritual operation, that they're deceived and that God did not create them this way or that way or to do this thing or that thing which is not of God. But because they have, we don't judge them unto hell. We love them as long as there's life in them and breath in them and an opportunity for God to come and redeem them just as he has us. Because we too once were sinners just as they are. And so they should understand that they're crucifying or, or trying to condemn the only group of people in this world that will always love them and always hope for them and always pray for them. To be redeemed, to be changed, to find a life of faith in Christ. And how could they hate someone like that? Amen. And it's because the enemy has deceived them into believing that they are their sin. And then unless we call it good, we are the ones responsible for the, for the hurt they feel. That the, the negativity that they feel, the condemnation they feel, it must come from these Christians who are judging them. Not true. We are called to judge all things. So every sin, yes, we understand that it's sin. We hate that sin because it hurts God's people. We want them to be free. This is not evil. This is good. Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells a parable. Starting in verse 9, he says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous 
and treated others with contempt. Here we go with arrogant people. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, a religious leader of the day, and the other a tax collector, one of the hated people of the day. Someone from their own culture, this culture who had been dominated by the Roman Empire, from, on, from their own people who had taken the assignment to go and collect unrighteous taxes, exorbitant taxes, and then whatever they could charge on top of that for themselves, and they had made themselves rich from the, the pain and oppression of their own people. So they were despised among the Jews. And then this pious religious leader who was very highly thought after in the community. So two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So the tax collector, the sinner who recognized his sin and humbled himself and asked, asked for mercy from God is the one justified before God and not the arrogant, prideful one who thought so highly of his own ways and his own actions and himself. For everyone that exalts himself will be humbled, Jesus said, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Another proverb comes to mind, 27, verse 2. It says, let another praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. We don't have to commend ourselves. We don't have to brag about ourselves. That just shows a great sign of insecurity. Let God see your good deeds. Sometimes... I get excited when I do good things and nobody sees. And instead of acting out in pride and being a show-off, which sometimes we all are, we have to brag on the good things we've done. I keep it to myself. And then I can celebrate that with God. Because I know He saw me and He's proud of me. And He's proud of the fact that I finally didn't brag about something that I had done right. And now he can bless me for it. Instead of the only blessing that I get is that that came from the world because I chose for people to see me and to hear about what I had done. And God says, if you do that, that's the only blessing you're going to get is what you got from those people. 
So if you want to be admired and built up with pride, then there's your reward. But try it my way and see how much better I can bless you than the world. I keep going back from Psalms to Proverbs to Psalms. I want to do it again one more time. Psalm 94. Because there's so much in Proverbs and Psalms about arrogance and pride and humility. and But there is a real confidence that comes from God. And I'll talk about that a little bit. Look at this. Psalm 94, verse 4. I'll back up one. Oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? Verse four, they pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. I already commented on that once, but the Lord brought me back around to it again. That boasting, those arrogant words, they're not of God. He does not like that. He does not think highly of us when we speak highly of ourselves. Arrogance is exaggerated self-esteem. An arrogant person competes with everybody around them. They're condescending to those that they feel are beneath them. And they're jealous of those who seem to be better in their eyes. This is the person that can tell everyone how to do their job better. They can tell the banker, the doctor, the wife, the housewife, the mother, the baker, their co-worker. They can tell everybody, the preacher, <laughs> throw that in for free, everybody. They tell them how to do their job better. But nobody can tell them anything. This is an arrogant person. How can anyone tell them anything? Why, why should they listen to anyone? They know everything. After all, they're the ones that tell everybody else how to be and do better. So what, what are the, why would they be in need of instruction? This is in their own mind, of course. The arrogant foolish person. Arrogance is the only disease that makes everyone sick except for the person that has it. Amen. <laughs> but the world is full of it. It's all around us. And if we're not careful, we can get into it ourselves. It was Lucifer's downfall. The devil himself. Go back over to Isaiah. There's a couple of places in the Old Testament. You don't see the devil discussed in the Old Testament. Why? Because the people were powerless against him. There was no salvation in Christ yet. There was no Holy Spirit poured out on all men. We had not been given the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and against the works of the devil by Jesus himself. 
So why talk about some big monster that they can't do anything about? All they could do was try their best to stay close to God and to honor Him with their lives and to obey and thereby being protected by Him for a season through types and shadows and sacrifices of blood until the one and final sacrifice could come, Jesus Himself. But let's look at these types and shadows and see how the devil himself fell. Isaiah 14 is one of them. I think... Verse, well, I can back up because really I'm trying to get to verses 12 and through 14 to show you his arrogance and pride. But just know that they're talking about Satan here. Your pomp, I'll start at verse 11 just to save time. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, to hell. The sound of your harps. Remember, Satan was, he was created, he was beautiful. He was like, uh, he, was, he was basically a musical instrument. He was in, in charge of all of the praise and worship of heaven. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. There's his end. How you are fallen from heaven. There he goes. O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. He was once very powerful. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Here goes his arrogance. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. Above God. I will set my throne on high. He began to believe his own press. He began to be impressed with his own beauty and magnificence. All the things that God had given him to serve God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. This is God's throne. He's trying to usurp. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? But really, this is type and shadow of the devil himself. The grace of God is the power and provision of God for us to be and to do all that He has created us to be and to do to His glory, not to our own. Yet you see here, the number five is for grace. 
Here it is in reverse order. You see starting in verse 13, Satan saying, I will ascend to heaven. One, I will set my throne on high. Two, I will set on the Mount of Assembly. Three, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Four, I will make myself like the Most High. Five, five times he claimed how he would in his own power and his own strength do these wonderful things and be as God himself. Five times he claimed his brilliance and he fell from grace forever. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 28. We'll look at one more example. Ezekiel chapter 28. We see in this lamentation, this prophecy against Sidon. But he's really talking about the enemy of your soul. This this king of Tyre, who is really type and shadow once again of Satan himself. I think I'll just back up and read it because. It's important for us to see how wonderful the blessing of the Lord is and how good we have it and how good Satan himself even had it. How Lucifer was his name before when he was an angel serving God and how wonderful things were for him. Yet, when you become arrogant and you think that it's you who has done these wonderful things, that all these things... Are you doing and and you believe that that you are powerful and mighty apart from God? What can happen? Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Now, this king of Tyre, while was a real king here, this is a type and shadow of spiritual things, the truth of the spiritual realm and Satan himself. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Think how beautiful he was. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Now remember when we learn about angels, that cherubs are not these fat little valentines, baby angels, the shooting arrows of love. They are mighty, warring angels. He was powerful and beautiful and anointed. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways. So... It wasn't like he was always terrible. He was doing right. He was serving God. He was beautiful and everything was perfect and he was powerful and anointed. 
You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness or iniquity was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you and you have come to be dreadful to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever that's the end of the arrogant and prideful it's not just for satan but people are destroyed for the same reason the enemy of the arrogant is the confident but not confident in an arrogant or prideful way. The truly confident, godly confident person relies upon God's grace and not their own ability. The grace of God toward the believer is already established, it's already granted, it's already settled in heaven 2,000 years ago. All of the blessings of God in Christ are yes and amen. He has blessed us. Past tense with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And the way that we access these blessings is by faith. And we know that you're not in faith if you're acting in arrogance. Because to truly be in faith, you have to be under grace. And if you're under grace... The true grace understands that it's not our ability, but God's ability working in and through us. The power and ability of God and the truth of God's word and his promises. So a truly confident Christian is a humble person. And that humility keeps us in position to continue to receive more grace and grace upon grace. The grace to be and to do all that God has created us to do. Never taking glory for ourselves, for the things that we are or the things that we do. Because the grace of God is what empowers us to be and to do the things that God has created us to do. Amen. So godly confidence it's just confident in Christ himself, knowing that he is in us and wanting to live and show himself through us. And so we celebrate that and we're confident in the truth of God's word and the truth of God's promises toward us and the truth of who God says we are and what we can do as he is walking with us and living through us. And is faithful to us.
good example of this is David himself. Go back to Psalms again, believe it or not. Psalm 131. And we'll probably finish here today. Because I want to get into something. Something beautiful that is coming to our nation. Something that can't not happen. But I think we need another next week to talk about it. As I continue to allow God to prepare my heart and mind to share with you his truth about what's truly coming to our nation. Psalm 131, though, is a psalm by David. He says, oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. There are four things that David shares with us, four secrets, if you will, in Psalm 131, this short, beautiful little psalm. Four of his secrets to life and success. And one of them is freedom from arrogance. And that's what he's claiming in the first verse there. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. I'm not arrogant. I'm not prideful. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. David, not afraid to say, I don't know. I just trust God. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Doesn't God say, be still and know that I am God? David was good at that. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David was a wonderful king and a great example. There were many things that David failed at. I think many people struggle with the scriptures reading that God himself said that David was a man after his own heart. They look at that and then just as the world does, they look at his sins. But look what he did. Look at the adultery. Look at the murder. Look at his terrible parenting. And how can you say that? So they're judging God for saying that. Just as I believe they would today. <laughs> Why do we see the arrogance and the corruption in our culture and our even the political leaders and and Christian leaders, so-called, and and all these other things? The corruption that you see—it's arrogance. It's a lack of knowing. Jesus, a lack of leaning upon his truth and just trusting, even when you don't understand his will and his ways, do it anyway. Because God said it and that settles it. 
It is not within man to direct his own steps. And when they do, just look around and you see the results. Because they left to their own wisdom and their own devices. And pretty soon they get into arrogance and pride and they think that they're wise in their own eyes. And God said, don't do that. You're not. Without me, you're not wise. Without me, you're not strong. Without me, you have nothing. And just because I have caused things to go well for you and I haven't put sickness and poverty and disease and strife on you, it's my blessing that is meant to bring you to repentance and draw you to me. But when you don't even recognize me as the source of your blessings, you're in arrogance and pride and you will be destroyed for it. David's security came through relationship with the Lord. David could lose his whole kingdom and not lose his security because his self-esteem and confidence didn't come from the fact that he was a king, but because he was in relationship with the one true and living God. If you were to meet David, you would say, He's still a shepherd. He's just wearing a crown. Because he was humble and he knew who his source was. And it wasn't him. He was a man after God's heart because he's the type that would get down off of his throne and humble himself no matter who was watching and repent before God. Because he cared more about what God thought than anyone else. And I think that made him a brilliant person and a mighty king. (coughs) Because just like David, if we would all walk in the reality and awareness of our total ineptness and weakness without God and thankful that we are not without God, We would have everything and more that we could ever imagine. Through that humility, we would position ourselves to receive grace upon grace and more grace. I've heard teachings that it's the mercy of God that's unmerited and that the favor of God or the grace of God is earned. It's not true. They're both unmerited. That comes from a lack of understanding of the grace of God. That the grace of God has been established. It's already on account. There's nothing we can do to change it. It's always there. It's always there for us. And it's not something we earn to go and get. We position ourselves. We've been studying the spiritual laws that God has in place to benefit His children And that's one of them. Humility is not something that we do to earn grace. It's just an attitude of the heart that keeps us in position to continue to receive and not open doors to the enemy to come in and try to reinforce the arrogance that he has 
in our lives. Because we realize that God is our source. And He loves us. And He wants us to be and to do more than we can ever imagine. And if we would just agree with God. And keep ourselves in position to hear Him and receive Him. To be still and know that He is God. To develop the hearing that we need to always receive the guidance and the instruction that He has for us. We will see wonderful things happen in our lives. God says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. To give you hope and a future. Good things. All good things. He says you will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart. He just wants us to be close to him. Because he craves that fellowship. That relationship with us. He created us and he loves us. He created us for himself. And he desires to be close to us in relationship with us. And that's where our strength is. That's where our power is. That's where our protection is. So why wouldn't a loving father want you to be close to him and to agree with him? Because he's never going to tell you wrong. He's always going to tell you right. So shouldn't we give him our full attention? Respect, reverence, and glory. The glory that he deserves instead of trying to take it for ourselves. I tell you, arrogance is a killer. It's a killer of people. It's a killer of nations. And we need to humble ourselves and pray. Pray for our nation. Pray for our leaders. Pray for the church. The body of Christ. And I'll finish with this. In Ephesians chapter 6. Talking about the armor of God. The Lord says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. The strength of His might. The strength of his might. Be strong in his strength. Not your own. It's an awareness. It's an attitude of the heart. Being confident in the strength that we walk in. But never thinking that it's ours. Apart from him. Amen. Lord thank you for your word. Thank you for your love and blessing. Thank you, Lord, that we know that you are calling your church to repent of the arrogance that it has walked in, that we can help this sick and dying nation to do the same. We know that you are calling and bringing revival to this nation. And we thank you, Lord, and we look forward to whatever you have in store. Help us to stay positioned in our hearts and minds to receive whatever you have for us, Lord, and to be obedient to your will and your word and not be moved by those who don't, but try to shine light in the darkness. 
and be the beacons of light that you've called us to, to live life of faith and not of fear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.